Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, uh, chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures it to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. Do you believe in him whom he has sent? So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat, Jesus said to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, New Hope. Uh, praise God for the gathering of his church and the privilege that it is to worship him together. Um, I just want to say, this is not in my notes or anything, but praise team, you did a phenomenal job, a tremendous job this afternoon. Uh, thank you for leading us into that time of worship. It was, it was fantastic. Um, if you are new to New Hope, welcome. We are so glad that you have joined us this afternoon. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Dan. Um, I serve as the youth director here for our church. Um, if you have any questions about youth group, about my sermon today, uh, if you want to talk, I like meeting new friends, um, please come see me after service. I'd love to meet with you and to chat. Um, there is a lot of things to cover today, so would you please join me in prayer as I ask for the Lord's blessing in the preaching of his word. Gracious God in heaven, um, Lord, we thank you for who you are in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have set us free, that you have laid aside your life to raise up ours. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be with me. Um, as normal, I feel my, my nerves um, overcoming me. Um, this is a particularly difficult passage for me to preach. Um, but, Lord, would you 
humble me. And Lord, would you help me to help my brothers and sisters in Christ. And for those who do not know you, that they might hear your word this day and that they may receive life. Uh, So Lord, would you be with me now? Would you give me a boldness? I ask this in your son's name. Amen. So um, normally, uh, you know, my sister doesn't go to church here, obviously. Um, she goes to a church out in the city. Um, but she'll come and visit us sometimes, and she'll, she'll sleep over. And when the kids are put to sleep, me, Jenny, and my sister, we'll, we'll hang out. We'll have a cup of tea. We'll have some snacks, and we'll just talk and, you know, talk about God. And Jenny's really good at this. Uh, see her after the service to ask her how she does it. But she, is, uh, she has uncanny ability to just bring conversations back to the gospel, back to the Bible, and to, and to probe and to really love on people in sharing Jesus. And so while I don't remember what the particular conversation was, uh, I remember my sister describing her friend from her church, and um, she gave a little description of Jesus like this. She said something to the extent of, um, you know, I really love Jesus. Uh, I imagine that Jesus was probably one of like, the coolest guys around. He was probably super funny. Uh, really laid back, chill, you know, he can just kick it with you at any time, uh, hang out, you know, relaxing kind of guy. And, you know, and that's why I love him. To my response is, okay, basically Jesus was a modern day hipster. But uh, my translation of the Bible doesn't use words like chill, laid back, kick it, but maybe there's a newer translation that I should go check out. But um, what do you think about this description of Jesus? And better yet, take a moment to reflect and consider what do you think it would be like uh, to interact with Jesus today? Now, I'm not saying that this, this girl is wrong. I'm not trying to, you know, um, say that she's wrong in saying those things, um, that this is a completely wrong description. But it certainly makes me feel nervous, and I would want to have clarification on what she means, because I'm not completely sure what she means by those descriptions of him. Uh, my initial impression, honestly, is that this Jesus he describes is not very controversial. He doesn't like to step on anyone's toes. Um, he's not going to call anyone out. He kind of just wants you, you know, zend out on life. Don't stress. Be accepting. So imagine yourself talking to this person who has given you this description. You're probably not going to say that they're wrong outright. And they might mean something completely different than the assumptions that I just gave you. But do you at least ask a follow-up question to what they mean? How would you dialogue with someone who talks like that? Maybe you don't have a better description, so you just kind of nod your head, be a little bit laid back, chill, kind of reflect that Jesus back to them. We're all a happy Christian family. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to judge anybody. We all see uh, Jesus differently. But I ask again, how would you describe Jesus and his interactions with people, especially in the Bible, and especially when it comes to their expectations and understandings of him? How does Jesus act? Now, I'm not going to advocate for my description of Jesus in this sermon. I simply want to advocate simply for what Jesus says and does in John 6. But I will say, if my sister's friend did mean that Jesus is a non-controversial, chill, general, all-around accepting guy who doesn't want to correct people for fear of offending them, well, let's go through John 6 and I'll let you decide. So with that in mind, what is Jesus teaching in John 6 and what does Jesus challenge us to consider about belief and faith in him? Uh, I have three main headers for our sermon today. Point number one is Jesus exposes our poor relationship with work and food. 
Point number two, Jesus exists as your all-satisfying nourishment. And point number three, Jesus ensures God's electing work. So several weeks ago, Rob preached the feeding of the 5,000. And if you recall, the miracle excited the crowd to the point that by force they wanted to make Jesus king over them. And that's not Jesus' style, so he withdraws himself from the crowd and tells his disciples to go over to the sea, go over the sea to Capernaum. Jesus meets them there, um, Alabet walking on water, you know, classic Jesus stuff. Uh, he transports the boat miraculously to its destination, and on they go. It's just a normal day of ministry with Jesus. Beginning again in verse 22, though, John narrates the events that took place with the crowd that was left behind while all of that was taking place. And so he says they, which is the remaining crowd from the feeding of the 5,000, notice that only one ship is in the bay and the disciples get into it. But they are watching and they are waiting, but they had never at no point see Jesus get into that boat with his disciples. But the disciples sail off. So once they realize Jesus is not coming back and his disciples have gone missing, they see some boats come from Tiberias and they get into those boats and then they go over looking for Jesus. I'm not sure how much time elapses, but verse 25 in John 6 says that the crowd finds him and they seem completely astonished. Rabbi, when did you come here? Or another translation might say, how long have you been here? They are confused and shocked because they never saw him get into a boat and how did he get over the sea? Uh, as I was reading commentaries on this, I stumbled upon one by R.C. Sproul, and he said he would have loved to see Jesus joke around and say, Jesus, how did you get here? Oh, that's easy. I walked. How did you get here? But that is nothing like the response Jesus gives the crowd. Point number one, Jesus exposes our poor relationship with work and food. Jesus, far from appearing happy or flattered that these people have come looking for him, responds to them quite bluntly. Look at verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Jesus completely ignores their question. Instead, he confronts their wrong motivation for coming after him. They apparently are not seeking after Jesus because he's a miracle worker. They are seeking him for another free meal. The crowd has grown hungry again. Jesus goes on, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So let's parse out what's happening here. The crowd has come looking after Jesus. They appear eager to be in his presence again. They approach Jesus quite formally, addressing him as teacher. Rabbi, tell us, how did you get here? This is, this is crazy. You, you are such an amazing man. And Jesus, skipping all social formalities, addresses them quite directly. He knows their real motivation for looking for him was they just wanted another meal. I don't think it's a far stretch to ask this, but why are you seeking Jesus? What do you believe it is Jesus can do for you? Do you see Jesus as merely a free ride? Do you expect that following him will amount to obtaining more blessing, more prosperity? Will Jesus bless your endeavors and your goals by joining forces with him? What is your motivation for seeking after Jesus? 
There may be many things we may seek Jesus for, but Jesus warns the crowd and potential seekers of him, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. What does that mean? Notice these people are looking to work for their food. They waited for Jesus to return after the feeding of the 5,000. They stalked him and waited for the boats to see when he would return. Uh, They eventually got into their own boat and crossed over the sea. And after landing, they went looking for him. All of their labors in hopes of obtaining another meal. But as most of you are working now know, working to simply put food on the table while really important, please put food on the table, that is not the thing putting the extra spring in your step in the morning to get to the office. Working for a paycheck for the sake of the paycheck is not satisfying work. Working for the paycheck to simply provide and have more things is not exactly satisfying either. You have probably heard many stories of people who have quit successful careers, given up their job for less pay and less prominence because They just couldn't deal with being another cog in the wheel. Working only for the check week by week quickly gets old, and Jesus recognizes this. If you are going to work, we need something better to work for, something more lasting, something more enduring. Jesus suggests some other alternative here, a more enduring way to work for food that leads to eternal life. The crowd is not connecting the dots yet, though. They ask Jesus, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And so I think they are recognizing that their efforts and the work is not producing better food. Their labors for food that perishes is something that is not satisfying. How many of you can relate to this? Who has felt the incredible emptiness and the letdown that comes with simply working for more stuff? I have to work harder. I have to get more money. I have to get more things, more vacations, bigger houses, more entertainment. And on and on it goes. It gets old. Or is that just my experience and there's some income cap that I have to reach and everything changes? Jim Carrey, I think, gets it right. One of the most successful, richest people in the world. His famous quote is this. You've probably heard it. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that that is not the answer. I think this is part of the human condition. We work harder to obtain more, and then after after consuming what we have obtained, we are not satiated. We want even more. Why is that? The crowd recognizes this. They're willing to play ball. They bite. Okay, Jesus, you are obviously talking about something better, something about God. Verse 28. What do we have to do? What religious works must we perform in order to gain access to this better, more enduring food? And unfortunately, most people outside the faith, and sadly, even for many Christians, they think that this is the formula for the Christian life. We do religious activities, participate in Christian practices, and by doing so, it will produce for us fill-in-your-blank. If we can serve God, we can do life his way, if we follow and keep his rules, if we live by the letter of rituals and Christian duty, God will bless us with, and I'll air quote this, a better life. A better life can mean different things to different people. It could mean a satisfying career, a beautiful potential spouse, 
a comfortable life, a general sense of peace and happiness, successful and healthy children, a chance to travel and enjoy all the wonderful sights and sounds of the world, to stay healthy and to live long. What is your version of the better life? And what relationship does Jesus have with it? Do we believe as long as we are kind to our neighbor, go to church, participate in Bible studies and prayer meetings, that by performing and doing these things, in a roundabout way, God will bless other areas of your life that matter to us. That life is just supposed to, over time, take a general trajectory upward and just get better, better, and better. Now, I know most of you already perceive this. You outright reject this form of thinking. That's moving into prosperity-level gospel. We know better than that. But while we may reject that in theory, how many of us are actually practicing it as if it were the case. I know that to be true because I struggle with that. Because that's how everything else operates on a day-to-day level. No one's going to give you a free handout. If you're going to get something worth having, you have to be willing to work for it. Nothing worth having will come easy. you got to get serious. you got to perform. You have to show why you are worthy of it. That's how almost every layer of human society works. You have to earn your keep. But that is not the gospel. That is not how the economy of God works. Look at what Jesus says in response to the crowds. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. No 10-step program, no test to prove your competence and worthiness, no checklist, no prerequisites, no resume and cover letter. Jesus says, take it easy, believe on him who he has sent. Simple, sweet, and inconceivable. This offer of eternal life, complete satisfaction, a blissed out existence is just to believe in you? It's too easy, Jesus. That is way too easy. And so the crowd doesn't buy it. They respond back to Jesus. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform I don't think the crowd is having the same reverence here as they did a few verses ago. Perhaps you can sense their deep frustration from the simplicity that Jesus suggests to them. In fact, it may even seem insulting to them as they recount the last two days looking for Jesus. They were part of the crowd that stuck around. They're the ones that came looking for him, seeking after him. Are you telling me that the part of the crowd that just went home that day, who got a nice meal and just believed on you, that they go home justified? But we're the sorry fools who came looking after you, and this is your simple response to us, just believe in you? So what work do you do, Jesus? What makes you so special? What sign will you show us to prove your worth to us? You know, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Moses gave manna from heaven to eat. What do you got? Isn't that bizarre that they asked Jesus this? Like, hello, crowd, Jesus just fed 15,000 of you, as Rob put it, with a little kid's lunchbox. And now you're demanding a completely new food sign? The crowd doesn't see it. They think this food is still about receiving physical substance, a physical uh, food they can hold out and receive. They essentially just want some magic bread. Show us the bread Moses gave to our ancestors Then we will believe you. Then we can start from there. The thing is, guys, 
we are all in the same boat. We're not any better. We work. We sacrifice. We labor in hopes that either God or a career or an idol that we serve will give us what we are looking for. We are looking for that special manna, that special bread, that once we get it, once we have it, maybe life won't be such a drag anymore. We'll finally be satisfied. We'll finally be happy. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father that gives you true bread from heaven. Jesus responds by saying, first off, stop attributing the works of God to men. Stop giving the glory that belongs to God and giving others credit for it. These people thought that Moses worked that bread. And Jesus goes, no, you don't understand. God is the one who works the bread for you. God is the one who gifts salvation to you. God is the one who's supposed to get the glory. You can't work yourself into eternal life. You can't merit blessings from God. God gives the blessings freely, not because anyone is inherently worthy of them, but because he himself is worthy. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not about earning your slice of the bread, earning your slice of eternal life. It's about believing in him who he sends, who has done the work already. It's about the work of Jesus. Verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Guys, here's the point. We need to get away from the mindset that you can bring satisfaction and happiness to yourself by working really hard for it. It's a broken method. If someone had actually figured out the way to do it, the entire self-help genre book would just die because there'd be one book of the guy who figured it out and we'd all read it and we'd all be happy. Stop working for the things that perish. This is what Jesus is teaching. Start believing in him who worked salvation for you, apart from you, despite of you, so that you can enter into a better, more complete, a more enduring satisfaction. I feel like I'm like pitching a bad infomercial. Are you tired of working out and not getting the results you want? Do you want to stop dieting and start eating the things you really want? Well, he is the gospel. Like, like, that's what I feel. Like, we feel it's gimmicky, right? It's a little bit too easy. But it's not easy. It's really hard to give up trying to work to prove yourself and to make yourself happy. We want to be in control of what we get and what we receive and what we think is good for us. But Matthew says, he who does not die to himself, pick up his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. That's a tall order. But Jesus exposes that the diet of working ourselves to the bone to try to earn eternal life is a complete fool's errand. You're just going to get hungry again and again and again. It's not lasting and it's not producing anything that's enduring. And so point number one is Jesus exposes our poor relationship with work and food. Point number two, though, is Jesus exists as your all-satisfying nourishment. This point comes directly from what Jesus says next in verse 35. 
And it further clarifies what it is that God intends for us to consume in order to be truly satisfied, to be happy. The crowd, verse 34, they respond well enough to Jesus' talk about Moses and manna. They say, sir, give us this food always. The crowd is primed. They want this bread. And maybe you're thinking, if I've in any way done my job, yes, Dan, what is this bread? How can I have it? What is it? Give it to us. So here's the astonishing revelation Jesus gives to the crowd. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoa. Faults with the preacher, not with the, sermon, uh, the, the words preached. The answer for life's all-satisfying satisfaction is not found in what God can give you. It's not a thing. It's not an object. It's not an idea. It's a person It's God giving you himself. Jesus is the bread of life that endures to eternal life with God. He's the climactic answer to the question, how can I be satisfied? How can I be fulfilled? How can I be happy forever? And this is what Jesus means when he says, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I think this understanding of the gospel is different from the way we most often hear it. We hear, believe in Jesus who died for your sins so that you may have eternal life. Amen, yes. That is compelling, that is truthful, and is important to teach and communicate in our relationships and in our evangelism. But I think that we often miss the idea of the gospel is not just citizenship in heaven, a ticket out of hell. It is not just about adoption. It's not just about forgiveness. It's not just about justification and a legal declaration that you are right with God. It is about joyful union with Jesus Christ that gains you all of those blessings. It's about savoring and delighting in and having our deepest longings satisfied in Him. Not the things that He can give us or get for us, When Jesus says that those who come to him will never hunger again, I don't think he's trying to communicate that if you believe on Jesus, that you're just never going to be hungry. I believe those who have Jesus as their greatest treasure and reward are those who live most satisfied. Jesus being the bread of life is really good news because that means that God will never deny himself to you. When your greatest joy is in Jesus... And when you come to him and say, Lord, I want to be satisfied in you, he gives you himself. He's died on the cross. He doesn't withhold any good thing from his children. And that's the mystery of the gospel. That's the astonishing, scandalous part of it. That God would reconcile sinful men to himself who don't deserve anything and that he would invite them into his glory and joy in himself. We so often fall into the trap that makes Jesus a means to some wrongful end. We come to Jesus much like the crowd did because we want to get something beyond Jesus. God, what do I have to do? How much do I have to work? What do I have to do to prove myself so that you will give me the thing that I actually want? But God is not going to satisfy you with something subpar and inferior to himself. He wants you to to want more of Jesus. Is that clear? Is that, is, that, is that coming across? I'm not trying to speak in metaphors. I literally mean desiring Jesus as a person like you crave time with your kids, your spouse, your family, your loved ones, and friends. 
Jesus is not merely the means, the ticket to a greater and better thing. Jesus himself is the greater and better thing. Jesus himself is the thing that you should truly want. And the realization for the crowd should have been, you, you're the one, Jesus. You're going to give me much more than food if I trust in you. I will receive God as my reward if I trust in you. What could I possibly want more than God? That's the logic Jesus is getting at. So maybe you're thinking, all right, Dan, why work at all? Let's call in tomorrow. Let's all parties, hand our letters of resignation, right? Well, obviously, that's not the conclusion Jesus wants you to make. It is a very clear and direct command in Scripture that we should work. But work in a different way, with perspective, with relationship with him. That should profoundly affect our relationship with work. Deep satisfaction in Jesus ought to produce a superior Christian workforce. When you no longer are working for the bottom line, when you are working for more than simply putting food on the table, when you are not working for a sense of approval and accolades, you become free to work for the glory of God. Work becomes a way to demonstrate That your enduring treasure is not in this life. It is for you in heaven, hidden in Christ. It is a work ethic that invites others to ask, man, you do a lot around here. What, What do you have that I don't? What makes you so happy? What are you, or rather, who are you working for that I am not? So let me ask you, New Hope. If you are being truthful, what is the real motivation and pursuit of your life? What is your bottom line? What is it that more often temporarily nourishes you but eventually lets you down and makes you keep chasing it even more? The book of John hammers the idea home that we need Jesus for our soul's satisfaction. The woman at the well, that was a story about satisfaction in Jesus and the living waters that he could give. Worship him instead of self and sex. The feeding of the 5,000, it's about Jesus having the power to satisfy all your needs. Worship, come to him, serve him. Is that something that rings true for you? Or are you working for things that are fleeting, unfulfilling, and are not nourishing? Jesus welcomes you. He says, come to me, all who who are weary. My yoke is light. Are you someone who has forgotten the joy of your master? Renew yourself by my streams of living water. Come to Jesus. Are you someone who perhaps is realizing either for the first time or again that you have been seeking God for the wrong things? Believe and trust in Jesus. He forgives you and welcomes you. He is our all-satisfying nourishment in this life. He is the bread of life. He is satisfaction that endures. And so here's my last point. Jesus ensures God's electing work. And so we've seen Jesus expose our wrong understanding about work and food. We have seen him offer himself as the only hope for true, lasting, enduring satisfaction. And now we look at Jesus ensuring God's electing work in salvation. Now, if everything that I have said and Jesus has stated thus far has not already been shocking, challenging, and difficult to process, let's throw predestination in there, right? Jesus provokes the crowd one last time and uses the opportunity to communicate and teach about God's sovereign election. 
Now, I want to be clear about what Jesus is talking about here. Maybe you've never heard of the term election. When I use the term election, I am referring to the doctrine of predestination, the teaching of predestination. This is the biblical teaching that God in all eternity has sovereignly, wisely, justly, lovingly, and by his own good pleasure, elected or predestined those who would receive Jesus Christ and trust and believe in the gospel. And so I must stress that God's free choice in this election has nothing to do with your works, nothing to do with your merits, or something that God saw in you down the scope of of time. But it is by grace, Ephesians 2 we read earlier, unmerited favor from God that you have been saved. And so this is how it plays itself out. You only respond to the gospel in your need of his grace in your life and become saved if and only if God has given you the gift to see it and to hear it. Because if God does not grant you the gift of faith and repentance, if God does not make you born again, you will not come. The Bible is clear. We are dead in sin. We love darkness. We openly and continually reject God until God does the work of new birth in us. And until that happens, we will not come to him. So you might be asking me, Dan, why do you mention all of that? Well, because Jesus mentions it in verse 37. He makes a statement. He says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus is saying this to the crowd for a specific reason. This is not just a random theology that I want to throw in the middle of of my sermon. It relates directly to what we've been observing in verses 22 through 37. Jesus is teaching the crowd something of the nature of who it is he will save and who it is that will come to him and believe. Don't miss the irony of what's happening here, though. The people come seeking Jesus. They want something they think Jesus can offer them. And Jesus has exposed to them their wrong motivations and their understanding. He has offered them correction. And then, most importantly, he offers himself to the crowd that they must, that we must believe in him if we are going to have eternal life, if they are going to obtain that food that causes them to never go hungry or thirsty again. But there's this word, but. But. Verse 36, Jesus talking. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So Jesus has just unpacked these realities of their depravity, their desperate need of him, not food. He displaces their focus on their works and their deeds and draws attention to his work. And yet, it says, they still do not believe. They come, but they don't come. They see him physically standing there, but they don't really see him. Why? Jesus is warning, because it may be the Father has not given them to him. Now that is shocking, and that is hard to swallow. I realize that. And you may even be saying, okay, Dan, I know the Bible teaches predestination, uh, but what is the good of it? Why talk about it? Why do you put so much emphasis on it here? Why mention it at all? Why provoke and stir the pot? I believe Jesus teaches this as a mercy to them and to us. He's calling us out as needing to hear this truth, to hear it because it should make us see the great inability we have to come to God. 
our need of God to grant us grace, and that all of us need to fall on bended knee and seek out Jesus for mercy. It should cause you to want to cry out and pursue Jesus as your all-satisfying, enduring nourishment. That is the intended effect I believe Jesus wants to have on this crowd who has come seeking him. He wants them to see their desperation and to cry out to him, Lord, we need you. And that is what I hope many of you who do not call Jesus Savior, Lord, or God would do today. That you would see your endeavors to please God outside of Christ as hopeless pursuits. That you are chasing after wind. That you might humble yourself to the free gift of grace that Jesus offers to you today to come to him. Don't pursue that which will perish. Pursue Christ who has worked for you. Don't rely on your own merits. Don't rely on yourself to make you happy, but seek his righteousness and seek his goodness. For my believing brothers and sisters here today, this text is not meant to scare us or to cause us to doubt, but to rejoice in our assurance. Look at what Jesus ensures us toward the end of the chapter. That all those that the Father gives me, I will not cast them out. If God has begun a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Philippians, you will never be cast out. This is the will of him who, he has, sent, who has sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me. You are a precious gift of God the Father to God the Son, and the Son cherishes what the Father has given him, and he is doing his will. I will not lose them. He will not lose it, and he will do the Father's will. This promise is repeated time and time again throughout the Scriptures, and I think we're going to see it again in John 10 when we come to it in verses 28 through 29. This is what Jesus is speaking to the elect, to those who would believe on him. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So two more times at the end of verse 39 and verse 40, Jesus ensures, he promises, he makes certain that those whom the Father has given him, those that believe on Jesus, he will raise them up on the last day to eternal life. Hallelujah. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, and it's because God has predestined that he will not lose a single soul he has elected to save. The doctrine of predestination is not something that we should ignore, fear, push off to some outer extreme of faith. It is at the core of our assurance and comfort that God is working and will bring to completion his work in us. You cannot lose your faith. Even as we struggle in doubt, sin, and sufferings, Jesus will not lose a single one that the Father has given him. Amen. Full circle now. Earlier I asked, how would you respond to someone with my sister's friend's description of Jesus? Would you at the very least seek to engage them further to identify if they have an accurate picture of Jesus? Do they have an accurate understanding of Jesus according to John 6? What if this was a conversation with someone about work and faith? 
How would you engage someone who may even say that they are Christians themselves, but are working themselves to the bone to either earn God's favor or they are working themselves away from God in the name of a better life? How might you remind and encourage them? Are we not called to go the extra mile as Jesus did in explaining to the people, the crowds, as he saw the flaws in their understanding and their inaccuracies of him? Guys, we all have blind spots. We all need help growing by grace and faith. And so hear me out. I am not advocating for elitism. I'm not advocating for theological snobbery or for you to walk around with a superiority complex. But how much of our Christian culture has adopted a worldly value of non-confrontation and all-around acceptance of everything as long as people are just well-intentioned? Yeah, well, you know, so-and-so said that, but, you know, they, they mean good by it. Good intentions. Yeah, sure. But what if it's completely inaccurate? Or worse, what if they believe something about Jesus that is completely wrong, false, heretical, and they will be damned to hell for all eternity for it? Because we did not engage them with the truth. I understand the need to speak with grace and love. We need to do that better. But I think sometimes for maybe fear or sense of taboo or just awkwardness. This is done to the fault of just not saying anything. But Jesus here perfectly embodies love and truth as he spoke. Granted, we often struggle to find that balance, but I fear we have swung from not wanting to appear pretentious in our understanding of Christ to instead silently affirming every wind of doctrine. Jesus goes to great lengths to correct wrong attitudes, false beliefs about God, to challenge wrong understandings of salvation. Speaking quite frankly, his teachings got him killed. And so I challenge you to think about, well, what is it we are called to as servants of the master if we are going to be faithful followers of him? My challenge to us this afternoon is let us rise above a superficial level of speaking about Christ to one another and to the lost. But let us speak at length and clearly and precisely about the important things surrounding Jesus, the gospel, and God's work in our lives. So I conclude this afternoon with asking you to take another look at the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Ponder his great work in dying for you and be stunned by his amazing love and mercy for sinners like us. The work of Christ in salvation is far superior than the collective work of every human over every generation over all existence. The work of the human race collectively does not hold a candle. It will never compare to the work Jesus completed at Calvary. Jesus is not a supplement. He is not merely a better alternative He is the only way to be made whole and the only thing worth pursuing. Can we say, New Hope, that we would trade, sell, give away, donate everything that we have if it meant obtaining Jesus, the pearl of greatest price, or to have the field with its hidden treasure? Has Christ become your enduring sustenance? Will you believe on him? Will you trust in his sovereign work and rest? Won't you consider joining me in pursuing him as our enduring food, both now and forever, to rejoice ourselves in him, having believed and received him as the all 
satisfying bread of life. May God receive glory for the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, um, Lord, you have worked wonders for us. And Lord, we oftentimes glance over them looking for other things. So, Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear of the wonderful mercies in Jesus Christ, that we would be brought to a place of not seeing this world of any value, but that we would have Jesus. Lord, the famous hymn says, take the world, but give me Jesus. All we want is him. Lord, let that be our greatest desire. Let that be our motivation for all that we do. And let us be a people who live to serve and to proclaim his wonderful name. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.